I love the book of First Peter, and I've really enjoyed the series because I feel like First Peter always challenges me to ask the question: um, Is Christ enough? You know, if everything else is taken away through hardships or trials or whatever it is, everything else is stripped away. Um, is Christ still sufficient within that? And I know that's a question I've had to ask myself if I've gone through First Peter, and I hope you've been. Um, challenged in your own way, we've wrestled through this book because I just think it's one of those fantastic books of the New Testament. So it's a privilege to be up here and to be able to wrap it up looking at the last chapter um, in chapter 5. And we've got a bit of time, so we'll be able to work through it pretty well this morning. So I'd encourage you to make sure you have it in front of you. Um, the words won't be on the screen, so um, if you can pull it up on, on your phones or there's Bibles over here as well, we can work through it together. Uh, I know Shabu just prayed, so but maybe I'll just open in prayer as well that we can get started, started looking at chapter 5. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, for the book of First Peter and the chance we've had to go through this series together as a church. And Lord, we pray that we'll continue to be reminded about the truths that are um, for us, the truths about what Jesus did on the cross and about what that means for us here and now. How we can not just survive in exile, but how we can thrive in exile as people of you as we await the coming glory um, that will arrive when Jesus comes again. Lord, we pray for this morning, uh, as we look at chapter 5, that you'll bring it alive for us. In Jesus' name, the church said? Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start with a picture. That's a marble run. They've changed. They used to be a little bit more um, basic. Now they seem to be quite sophisticated. I got this set for um, Caleb about 12 months ago. And he needed me to build it with him at the start, okay? Because he was just learning about, you get an instruction book and says your yellow block goes here, your blue block goes here, your little horizontal bit goes here, and eventually you get these amazing creations where the marble has a marvellous time all the way down. He needed me to build it, though, because he wasn't used to instructions, okay? Um, and when it's built, you can see it's quite impressive. It's a work of art. It works the way it should, generally. Um, the marble goes where it should go, and it all works as is designed and is intended. Now, the problem is, um, Caleb has a younger brother. Caleb's younger brother is Zaki, and particularly 12 months ago, um, Zaki was attracted to these marble runs like a moth is to light. Um, but he's not, doesn't quite have the dexterity to be able to work the marble run in quite the same way. So what was a work of art um, soon turned into a very different image. That tends to be what you're left with when Zaki gets in the zone. And I think Caleb's facial expression there is pretty fitting because that's generally how it looked. There's this sense of, I can't believe this just happened. This construction has just been demolished into a complete mess. But the problem is that he needed me to come home to fix it. So he'd have to wait for me to come back from work or to come back from meetings after church or whatever for the next time slot to arrive where we could restore the construction to what it was. In the meantime, he's left with a question, what am I meant to do with this? And in some ways, I think that's a great reminder of the gospel and it's a great theme of First Peter because God created an amazing construction. He created a work of art, didn't he? He created things perfect in the beginning, but the problem was sin came in and it turned it into a complete mess. Sin has taken the world which God loves and turned it into um, a complete mess. And you see that picture of mess painted all the way through 1 Peter. He talks about us being grieved with many trials, about enduring much suffering, about persecution, about flawed authorities that were ruling in the day. These were all um, illustrations of the mess in which we live in. 
the fact that forces us as Christians to be treated as exiles because our home is no longer in this mess, our home is somewhere else. That is the theme of 1 Peter in some ways. But in the midst of that mess, there's still a promise of what's to come. Jesus will come back and things will be restored. The things will be made new. His kingdom will be reestablished and we will be glorified on that day. But we're left with that question then, well, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do with the here and now? Now, that's a big question that flows through much of First Peter and is a question that sets the backdrop for the final chapter in chapter 5. Because in chapter 4, where we're just coming out of in First Peter, it talks about the mess. In verse 1, it talks about suffering in the flesh. In verse 2, it talks about fiery trials. In verse 13, it talks about sharing Christ's sufferings. This is the mess. This is the devastation that's being caused by sin. Sin is all-consuming in this world. We know it's a complete mess. We prayed about it. It's going in a direction that God doesn't want it to go, or that sin is taken in a direction that's not of God. There is no recognition of Jesus as our one Saviour and Lord anymore. But in the midst of this, in chapter 4, verse 7, it says, The end of things is at hand. Verse 13, God's glory will be revealed. Verse 17, a time of judgment is coming. There's that future promise that things are going to be made new. But then you're left with a question at the end of chapter 4, or what about now? What do we do while we're waiting? What do we do while that promise is yet to be fulfilled? And so at the start of chapter 5, we get this word, so... It's like there's this big exhale. So, in light of all these things, let me share some thoughts on you with you about how, as a community of believers, we can live in the midst of this mess and not just survive our exile, but thrive in it. So let's work through chapter 5 um, together. Eh? First few verses in verse 1 to 4. He starts by saying, So, in light of all this, so, I exhort the elders among you. Now, don't panic because I won't stop every half sentence, but just make sure we've got the audience right here. Because the temptation when you see the elders among us is to think this is a sermon for four people. Mike, Alan, Nathan, uh, sorry, Shabu, John, four elders, they're the ones who should be listening to this. But I think the audience is wider than that. Some of you might think it's for those who are just 70 years and up. People who are here probably thinking, I'm in the category. Um, however you draw the line between elder or not. Um, but I think the audience, again, is slightly different. See, the idea of an elder came into church life from Jewish culture. You, know, you read through many places in Exodus, there is a drawing together of the elders of Israel. Now, that didn't necessarily refer to a particular office. It referred to people who were of spiritual maturity, um, who had wisdom and experience amongst the people of God. It wasn't just about a, it certainly wasn't about perfection. It encapsulated those who knew God, who, who demonstrated a maturity in their spiritual walk, and who wanted to offer, therefore, support and guidance for God's people. And we see that in verse 1, Peter puts himself in this category. He refers to himself as a fellow elder. He puts himself in this category. 
And he does it by saying, I'm a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I know Jesus too, he's saying. I'm a follower of him as well. I want to support the community. And so this is a message for me as much as it for you. We are all fellow elders because we are a people who know Jesus, we're following Jesus, and we want to support others in doing the same. So he says, to all those people, I exhort you, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The command here that Peter, that Peter is giving to his fellow elders is effectively to shepherd the flock. Now, it's interesting that Peter gives them this command because it's the command that Jesus gave Peter. In John chapter 21, there is this dialogue between Jesus and Peter. It's a section of the Gospel of John where Jesus is being crucified. Um, he's risen from the dead, and then he interacts with his um, disciples at different points, and he has this dialogue with Peter. And he asks him the same question three times. Many of you will be familiar with it. He says, Peter, do you love me? Jesus says, well, yes, I do. Uh, Sorry, Peter said, yes, I do. And Jesus says, well, do you remember what he said? Feed my lambs. Yep, three variations on the same theme. Jesus asked him again, do you really love me? Peter says, take care of my sheep. And he says, well, Peter, do you really, really, really love me with your innermost being? And Peter says, I do. And then Jesus says, well, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you love me, the expression of your love for me is to shepherd my flock. And now Peter is in turn turning to the church and saying, those of you who love Jesus, those of you who uh, have a spiritual maturity in your walk, who want to support the people around you, then you've got the same call that I do. We are all to shepherd the flock amongst us. We are to shepherd God's flock. But the issue we have when we look at that instruction is it doesn't really make sense to us today because it's not part of everyday speak, is it? You don't think in terms of being a shepherd. You don't think of each other as flock. So how do we translate that into today? Well, you get a bit of a snapshot, I think, in verses 2 to 4, in that it talks about the way it should be done. Exercising oversight. In other words, watching out for those around us. Doing it eagerly and willingly. Not under compulsion, not because you have to. Not for your own motives, because it makes you feel good, because you're helping other people. But it makes this point at the end of verse 3, being an example to the flock. Now that's the idea that I really want to hone in on, being an example. When I was young, I used to play a fair bit of tennis. And I followed someone who was, you know, your favourite tennis player, Stefan Edberg. Anyone here remember Stefan Edberg? All the old people, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, those put their hand up. I was in that category because I just said that I followed him, Stefan Edberg. Now, why do I like Stefan Edberg? I always thought of him as the last of the Mohicans in a way. He was classical serve volley tennis player, one-handed backhand, um, great slice backhand, and really good temperament. And I just thought he stood for the last of that era, just at a time where the new game style was coming in, which was basically thump it as hard as you can from a baseline with a two-handed backhand. And so I respected Stefan Edberg, but it wasn't just about his technique. I appreciated the way he approached the sport. 
So again, around this time, you had the likes of Andre Agassi, you had Jim Courier, you had John McEnroe, and they all busted onto the scene with their domineering personalities, the way they bullish, bulled their way through the tennis court, they'd swear at the umpire, they had code violations every single set. But Stefan Edberg, it's like he rocked up each match, he'd give 100%, but if things went against him or was going for him, you'd have no idea what the score was because his manner was always exactly the same. At least it appeared from a kid who was watching him on TV. And for someone who was playing a fair bit of tennis, I saw him as an example that I wanted to follow. And I think there are a few things more powerful than someone who sets an example that you then want to follow. How do we shepherd the flock? Well, I think in the midst of this messiness of life, in the midst of our hardships, in the midst of our opposition and in a world which is drifting further and further away from God's intended design, in the midst of our struggles with sin, we are to be an example for those around us in the way we live out our lives for Jesus. To be an example in the way we love others. To be an example in the way we pray for others even for those who can make our life difficult at times, to be an example in the way we refuse to compromise, as Nathan talked about a couple of weeks ago, to be an example that live our lives in a way that is honouring to him so that people see Jesus in us and they want to follow. Do you remember Paul's instruction to Timothy? Timothy was a young leader of a church, probably with a lot of elders that were above him. And he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one look down on you because you are young, but set an example for others in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In all that you do and all that you say, Timothy, no matter what your age is, doesn't matter, be an example. That's how you lead. That's how you shepherd. But it gets even bigger than that. Because in verse 4, we get pointed towards the chief shepherd. It goes on to say in verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, the example we are to set for each other is intended to be the same example that we are set by the chief shepherd in Jesus Christ. See, in John 10, verse 11, Jesus said this about himself. He said, I am the good shepherd. I am the chief shepherd, you could say. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And he did. He constantly placed the needs of others above his own to the extent it led him to a brutal execution on the cross. The shepherd giving his life for his sheep. He lived out his life purely for the salvation of others. That was it. That was the driving focus. Obedience to God and the salvation of others. And now Peter says to his readers, you've seen that example. You've seen the chief shepherd. I'm a witness to what the chief shepherd has done. You've seen his complete obedience to the Father. You've seen his complete submission to God's will. You've seen his complete dedication to the service of others. You've seen his willingness to surrender 
all so that his sheep might be saved. Now you go and do likewise. Shepherd the flock who is amongst you. Church, we need to pray that by God, that by his strength, we might set an example that others might want to follow all the way to Jesus. That's how we shepherd this congregation. That's how we each shepherd each other. That's how we shepherd our small group members. That's how we shepherd our kids. By praying that through God's strength, we can set an example that they might follow all the way to Jesus. Now, Peter then uh, switches the focus away from the elders and he talks towards um, a different audience. If we look at verse 5, he says, Likewise, in the same way. Interesting. He's applying those same instructions to a different audience. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you now. He's expanding it out to all who are reading this book. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. It's hard to miss the focus on humility in those verses. He says, clothe yourselves with humility, humble yourselves. God gives grace to the humble. Three times in two verses you see that same theme. But rather simply saying the principle in that is to be humble, I think we can dig a little bit deeper to understand the underlying concept that Peter is really driving from. And I think that stems out of the idea of clothing yourself with humility. See, we think of clothing yourselves as clothing yourselves, but um, the word here in the Greek is actually not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a unique term. And it really, it's often one, it was one that carried the context of servitude or slavery. Because rather than clothing yourself as in putting on your outer garments, it was more about tying or fastening something around yourself. You might have heard the term gird yourself. It's that kind of idea about girding yourself with something. And what was often fastened around them was like a scarf or an apron that distinguished them as a slave as opposed to a free man. It was a mark of slavery, a mark of servitude. Now, the only other place in the New Testament where this, con- where this concept comes up is actually in the Gospel of John again, chapter 13, verses 4 to 5, where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And in that section, it says this. It says that Jesus rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He girded himself with the towel. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Why did Jesus gird himself or wrap the towel around him? Because he was assuming the posture of a servant, wasn't he? Which is amazing because the king of kings and the lord of lords was assuming the posture of a servant. He was identifying himself with one who had kneeled down at the feet, the lowest place, to wash the feet of everyone else in that room. Jesus was assuming the posture of a servant as our servant king. And you have to think Peter, therefore, was being quite deliberate in challenging ourselves to embrace that identity of a servant, 
to gird ourselves with this towel of humility, if you like, to cover ourselves in it and direct this humility toward one another. And that's a vital concept here. This humility is not something that's given, 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 given. It's actually intended to be something that is toward each other as a community because humility and service, I think, is always intended to be lived out as a community. Now, my wife and I are coming up to our 10th anniversary, if you can believe it, and she hasn't heard this illustration, so we'll see how it rolls. Um, but you learn a lot about each other in 10 years of marriage. Um, some of you are thinking, no, you don't. You learn a lot in 50 years of marriage. But you learn a bit in 10 years. But you also learn a lot about yourself. And one thing I've learned about myself, which has become abundantly apparent, is acts of service are just not on my radar. Way down the bottom. A lot of you are probably familiar with the book with the five love languages. It's like physical touch, words of affirmation, blah, 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 blah. Acts of service. Acts of service is right down the bottom for me, clearly. There would be times where Melody would go through a spree and she would empty out everything in the room or in the house. It would be spread out everywhere. And by the time she's finished, though, it's incredibly organized, color-coded, number-coded, height order in this amazing system that's in her head. And right when she's in the thick of it, I would often walk in and make a really unhelpful comment like, what are you doing? When she's pouring out all this effort as a gift to me that is just completely unrecognized. Now, when you pour and pour and pour and you receive nothing in return, it feels incredibly draining. But the rare, rare times where I've had the forethought to say, you know what, tonight, take it easy, I'll look after the kids. Or tonight, I'll cook dinner, you have a break. When there's actually um, a mutuality in that service, it's an incredibly powerful thing. Now, marriage is a unique context, but isn't the concept the same in a community and in a congregation? That when we feel like we're talent, we're girding ourselves in humility, we're giving ourselves out, we're giving, 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 giving and receiving nothing in return, it can lead to people feeling drained, underappreciated, um, burnt out and undervalued. But when there is love and gratefulness and service toward one another, where as a community we are seeking, each and every one of us is seeking to assume that posture of service and there's a mutuality and it's done towards each other rather than simply receiving, that is when a community becomes a very powerful witness for Jesus. That is when relationships are formed and strengthened. And that is where we band together as one and we don't just survive our exile, we actually start to thrive in it because we stand together as one under Jesus and we say, you know what, no one of us is more important than any other. We are all servants of each other. So if we have to live our lives in exile, let's do it together as one and help each other to the best of our ability in the strength that Jesus has in us. And he says to us following that is his encouragement he says when we do that in verses six to seven he says i will exalt you cast your anxieties on me because i care for you in other words i know it's difficult to carry this road this road of servitude i know it's difficult to give out and give out and give out and constantly place the needs of others above your own i know that's a hard road he's saying But to the extent it's difficult, cast that struggle on me because I care for you. I understand because it's the road my son walked. And he walked it first. And he walked it in a way that we will never, ever, ever, ever be able to understand. 
So God says, I get it. I get it. But as you encourage and support each other, I will encourage and support you in turn as your chief shepherd and your father God. So what do we do in this mess? While we're waiting for things to get better, what do we do in the meantime? Well, elders, all of us, shepherd the flock by being an example. Clothe yourselves with humility by being a servant. But when we hit verse 8, the tone really changes. Let's read verse 8 and 9. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood brotherhood, throughout the world. In the midst of this mess, we need to be mindful of Satan's attacks, don't we? We don't really like to talk about the enemy or Satan that much. I think we talk about God and his salvation as much as we possibly can. Uh, But the flip side of that tends to be a little bit of an uncomfortable topic. But I think it's clear when we read this peril, this um, passage, that we ignore him and his reality at our own peril. Now, I looked through, um, I did a bit of research into try and find ways in which Satan is referred to in the Bible and ways in which he's described as working, because I think it gives us an insight into the way he seeks to influence our lives. He's the deceiver, like the serpent who plants lies in the Garden of Eden about who God is and what he has done. He is the enemy. Literally, literally the name Satan is translated as the adversary, the one who seeks to hurt and damage and destroy. He is the tempter, tempts us towards sin and therefore away from God. He is the wicked one from whom all evil and wickedness originates. He is the accuser and the slanderer, plants false guilt in our consciences over and over again. He is the enemy of all who God is and all who God loves. He lies, threatens, deceives, accuses, hurts, Schemes, and his only purpose is to oppose the work and the people of God. But importantly, he is real. Church, the enemy, that is the enemy that prowls around looking for someone to devour. It's strong language, and it's intentionally strong language so that we don't just gloss over it and forget its significance. We ignore him overlook him and underestimate him at our own risk. So Peter says, be sober-minded, be careful, be aware of this, be watchful and resist him because if we give him a foothold, he keeps going and going and going until he consumes and leads you down a path that ends in spiritual death and destruction. But having painted that picture, I think the words that are used um, in this section are very interesting. If you look carefully at the words, he's described as prowling around but not attacking. He's described as roaring but not ever touching. 
He's described as seeking out prey, but not actually finding it. I think that's really interesting. It's, in other words, he is definitely present and a threat, but it's like he's saying that when we stand firm as a community in exile, when we stand firm under the watchful eye of our chief shepherd, it's like the attacks of Satan are kept at bay. He's present and he's a threat, but he's not able to fill out that which he intends. There is a safety which you can read into this, which is found in the chief shepherd as he protects his flock. Now, you see, people read... Um, 1 Peter 5, 9. And I think they can read into that. Therefore, the take-home point is to resist. Resist him. Stand firm. And that's true. We're called to stand firm in Jesus Christ. We're called to lock onto him as our form of defense. And he protects us against the threat of the enemy. But if we're going to focus on the command, I think it's important that we don't lose sight of the promise. Because commands are one thing. But those commands are incredibly empowering when they are accompanied by the promise. And I think the promise to this command is actually found in James 4 verse 7, where it says this, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, same command, and he will flee from you. And you see the promise there? Resist him and he will flee from you. In other words, when we submit ourselves to God, when we draw near to him, then by drawing near to God, we are automatically drawing ourselves away from the attacks of Satan. As we seek to obey God, we are propelling away the enemy and his schemes. As we stand behind God and we submit to God, Satan stands no chance because he can't overcome that. For Jesus alone has won the victory, hasn't he? Jesus alone is all-powerful. He has conquered sin and death on the cross. And Satan knows that the time where Jesus comes again, his ultimate outcome is death and destruction. So the promise is when we draw near to Jesus and we resist and we stand firm in our faith in that way, then the promise is that Satan will flee. When we stand firm in that way, the promise is that his lies will never find a home in our heart. His deception will never take root in our souls. His attacks will never overcome us. His wickedness will never overwhelm us. And his accusations and slander will always return empty. Because we stand firm in Jesus Christ, Satan is still prowling around, he's still present, he's still a threat, but he will flee from the power of Jesus and the, and the significance of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We've got to hold on to that promise. You can't just stand here and say, resist, resist, resist. You've got to do that in the light of Jesus, don't you? You've got to grab hold of the promise that flows when we do that. You've got to grab hold of the faith that when I stand firm on God's word, when I stand firm on the truth that Jesus loves me, that he is always with me, that he cares for me, and that he will overcome, the promise is that he will flee. He will flee. Church, I don't know what attacks you feel as though you're under at the moment. When you read this verse, you can say that this suffering is common to the brotherhood all over the world. We all have our own stuff going on. It just looks different for each of us. 
We all have our own attacks. We all have our own hardships. We all have our own trials. It just looks different. It looks different for each of us because we're all at different stages. But the truth we can grab hold of here is that Jesus reigns. Amen? He reigns. His is the victory. And when we cling on to him, the attacks of the enemy will never prevail. They can't. They simply can't. And you see this truth filtering through verses 10 and 11 as well. Peter then says this, And after you have suffered a little while, we're going to suffer. Life is going to be hard. No form of exile is easy. Life is a difficult road. There's acknowledgement that we will suffer. And he says, after you have suffered, but no, that's suffering, he says, after you have suffered a little while. What is the little while? Well, it might be our whole life, but in the light of eternity, it's eternity. It's just a little, isn't it? When you zoom out and you have an eternal perspective, you go, this life in exile following Jesus is going to be difficult because Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. I'm the good shepherd. I gave my life for the sheep. The call is for you to do likewise. That is a very hard and difficult road. But in light of eternity, it is such a little road. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, God will do it, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Church, Jesus is coming back, isn't he? A time of restoration is coming. It's the promise for so much of First Peter that although we live in this messy and difficult exile, although things are not the way they were meant to be because sin has made it that way, although this place may not be our home, we can still thrive in the midst of our exile as a community of followers of Jesus. Knowing that A time of restoration is coming. That Jesus will come and he will make all things new. So what do we do in the meantime? We shepherd the flock. We set an example. We serve each other. Clothing ourselves in humility toward one another. And we stand firm, grabbing hold of the promise that's in scripture that when we stand firm in him, God protects his people. And how long do we do this for? Until he comes. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, that being said, if you're anything like me, you think you can't do a series on First Peter and, and not read the last two verses. So maybe as a benediction... Um, let me read out the last two verses for you, and then we'll close. By Silvanus, this is verse 12 to 14. A faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm then. Isn't that a great summary of the book, isn't it? Uh, this book, these truths, what we've learnt, the true grace of God. 
stand firm. She who is a Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Feel free to do that after the service. Peace to, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are our chief shepherd. We thank you that you give us guidance on how we can thrive in exile and not merely survive it. Lord, we thank you that although we live in this mess, there is a time coming where restoration will come, where your glory will come, where it will be revealed, where you will make all things new and you will end this suffering and hardships and trials once and for all. Lord, we live in the light of that but we recognize that we also exist in the here and now. And in that respect, Lord, may your spirit give us power to set an example to each other, an example that our communities can follow all the way to Jesus. Lord, may we serve each other, clothing ourselves in humility toward one another as we elevate the needs of others above our own. And Lord, may we stand firm in your truth, Stand firm in who you are and the knowledge that you are a God who saves. That the work of the cross was a work of salvation. That when we believe in you, we not only have new life, we have a new protector, a new guardian, a new safekeeper, our chief shepherd in Jesus Christ. Lord, as a church, we all said, Amen.